Mark Cuban. How you do anything is how you do everything. If you're not, if you don't pay attention to detail on the little things, you're not going to be in the habit of paying attention to detail for the big things. Ken Griffey Jr. Hey, he wears his hat backwards. Well, I wear my hat backwards because my dad had a fro and I wanted to wear his hat. And if I put his hat on at age six and, you know, he's got a eight and a half and I got like a little five, it's not going to really stay on my head. Jeannie Buss. Thank you for having me. What a nice turnout. It's good to see everybody. John Smoltz. If you don't have the imagination and the willingness to fail or not being afraid to fail, I don't think you can be truly great. Candace Parker. I have had so much hope for this generation coming up that have grown up with women in sports, in leadership roles, on television, speaking about sports, speaking knowledgeably about sports. How Gasol. To me, all the work that I've done, all the humanitarian work that I've done has always given me great perspective, has allowed me to keep my feet on the ground and uh, has really put and reminded me what's truly important. Damian Lillard. That was for Seattle. (laughs) (laughs) Just to name a few. Welcome to Sports Business Radio. Now, here's Brian Berger. Well, thanks for joining us on this edition of Sports Business Radio, powered by our partners at Molka Sports. Two insightful conversations for you this week, both friends. Mike Hackman, president of Sports Strategies and Solutions, former longtime Nike and Jordan brand executive. He's going to join me. If you've listened to some of our recent shows, we've talked about the shift in philosophy for Nike Are they going to be using elite athletes to endorse their products anymore? And that's really what the company was built on. Steve Prevontaine was the first endorser for Nike. We've seen Michael Jordan, LeBron James, Tiger Woods, Serena Williams. Are they going to be using endorsers anymore? Mike Hackman has a unique look into the sports marketing landscape at Nike as someone who worked there for many years. He's also got some great stories to share from some of the events he ran for Nike basketball. One of the events he ran was Michael Jordan's fantasy camp called Flight School. And Hackman will tell us about a meeting between Michael Jordan and late pop music icon Michael Jackson. That's coming up on our show today. Also, Sports Business Radio co-founder Keith Foreman, he's going to stop by. We're going to wrap up the MLB season, look back on how that was, a title for the Los Angeles Dodgers, which happens to be Keith's team. And we're going to go back and forth on the post game of game six of the World Series. Everything from Rob Manfred's trophy presentation to why was Justin Turner on the field without a mask when he had COVID? We'll talk about that with Keith Foreman. This week's edition of Sports Business Radio is presented by Mizzen in Maine. Mizzen in Maine makes wrinkle free dress shirts dress pants and tops that are comfortable and breathable. It's like dress clothing disguised as athletic apparel. No dry cleaning needed. Try their new boxers, COVID masks. I just got some new uh, fall wardrobe items from them, including a hoodie that I'm very happy to be wearing. Uh, You can go to mizzenandmain.com, use the promo code SBR to save at checkout. I'm joined by executive producer Brian Griggs. Griggs, today is election day, as we have been reminding people for months now, vote. This is probably the most important election of our lifetime. Yeah, I was just going to say, we were talking before we started recording, and uh, big day, election day morning as we're recording it here, and you and me were talking about how it's just kind of exciting to watch the coverages and Twitter and see how it all is get handled as we, you know, every year it's different, and obviously 2020 is big time different, so 
Uh, it'll be exciting to see how it all comes out. And like you and me were saying, who knows if we'll even know tonight who the next president is. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, we've got all kinds of stats. One, you know, it looks like as of today, election day, over 100 million people in the United States have already voted. So that's good. You know, I think the record turnout ever is like 64% of the country voted. Um, hopefully we can get to that mark. And yeah, I'm really interested to watch the media today and, and see, you know, everyone from CNN to Fox News to NBC to CBS, ABC, uh, you name it. Let's see what that coverage looks like. As you said, uh, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram have designated like seven trusted media outlets who can call the election. So I'm just really interested to see how it all unfolds, what the coverage looks like, who the different voices are. And then, uh, you know, are we in a position at the end of the evening, probably not, where we know who, you know, the next president of the United States is going to be for the next four years? Yeah, it's always exciting. I mean, election day is just kind of a, it's it's an American it's American thing. You know, you get excited about it. You you have your right and your duty to vote and then you get to see how it all comes out. It's just always exciting night. I've, I've always enjoyed watching it. Uh, the NBA, we'll talk about this before we get to the conversation. So they're in an interesting predicament. Uh, the owners and Adam Silver want to start the season on December 22nd, a few days before those showcase games on Christmas. The players were thinking more along the lines of a January 18th start. It's about a $1.5 billion difference in revenue if you start December 22nd versus January 18th. They want to start camps around December 1st. So here we are on November 3rd as we record this. They've got to get some sort of deal in place soon. And if they don't, then, you know, there's going to be a lot of money that's lost for the owners and the players. It's going to be interesting to see what the date is that they come up with. We remember Mark Cuban was on a few weeks ago, owner of the Dallas Mavericks, and he said February. So when I started hearing about a December 22nd start time, I was like, that's pretty different than February. What's going on here? And it seems like the sides are pretty far apart, but it'll be interesting to see what date they settle on, Griggs. Yeah, this is uh, as the 2020 saga continues, we have uh, a different NBA look again, even outside of the the last season in the bubble and all that. Now we've got when are we starting the next season and how's that going to look? So, yeah. And like you said, with Cuban, they're kind of separate. He's saying February, you know, other parts of the NBA say in December. So here we go. Come to the table and see what happens. But I agree. We're early November now. That deal has to be, you know, put together pretty quickly if we're going to get going in December. Yeah. And if not, you know, the longer they wait, the less money that everyone has to divide. So um, I know the NBA is doing things like allowing teams to potentially do deals with casinos, hard alcohol companies, deals that have been, you know, kind of poo-pooed in the past are now being looked at as new forms of revenue to make up some of that shortfall if the season does start a little bit later. So that's going to be interesting to watch. Griggs, NFL, Boy, uh, we're in the Pacific Northwest. This is as well as I've seen Russell Wilson play. I think he's MVP so far in the NFL. Seahawks off to a great start, but uh, he's been a lot of fun to watch. And then if you listen to the Bill Simmons podcast this week, you know, Simmons was talking about how Russell Wilson spends a million dollars per year on his body. So he's got two chefs, he's got a trainer. Um, he's got a, you know, physical therapist. He, he's got people that keep him healthy 
year round. And, you know, we've heard James Harden, LeBron James, Tiger Woods, other people who spend a lot of money on their physical health and their eating and things like that. But uh, Russell Wilson's looking pretty good. Yeah, he is a machine. DK Metcalf this last week, little uh, LeBron and him tweeting back and forth, calling him, ba- call him baby Bron. I thought that was funny. But yeah, those guys, I mean, you and I have talked about that too. If we were rich rolling in the dough, we'd both have a personal chef because wouldn't it be nice to just have meals that you know you're supposed to eat prepared for you every day? I mean, I would wake up every morning and have a healthy breakfast on the table. I'd have my smoothie, have someone making me, you know, you know, I'm not a big coffee drinker, but like a mocha or something like that. It would just be so nice. Think about how great of shape we would be in. I will say, though, I'm down about 15 pounds since March because I've been riding the Peloton like a beast. I rode 45 minutes the other day on the Bon Jovi ride with Kendall Tool. So, uh, you know, at least I've got my Peloton. That has been the best investment I've made of 2020 by far. Yeah, those things are awesome. And I, uh, I've i been taken to running. I've been running around the neighborhood every single morning. And I just love the, getting some fresh air and seeing the hood. And uh, it's been helping me feel good and healthy and keeping uh, in shape. So I love it. Yeah, it helps to stay active right now. And you got to get out of the house every once in a while and breathe some fresh air since we're all working from home. We're on Zoom calls. We're on phone calls. So definitely get some fresh air and breathe. That's what I'm telling myself today deep breaths, take a walk around the neighborhood. Like today is going to be a stressful day for a lot of people. So, and it's going to be a stressful next few weeks, probably for a lot of people. We just got to take some deep breaths and and stay calm. And by the way, I don't think our listeners are like this, but if it doesn't go your way, don't be destructive. Like, you know, I'm reading about these cities that are preparing for destruction in their city and they're boarding up the downtowns and It's just like, you know, I've never understood when a team wins a championship and property gets destroyed and they turn cars over and start fires and things like that for winning a championship. Don't be destructive if your team loses this election. I know this is much more important than a sporting event, but being destructive is not the way to go. Yeah, I've never understood that either. So good, good reminder and good warning and just kind of a just, you know, stay in your house and take it deep breaths. Think of the Masters tournament coming next week and Jim Nance saying, hello, friends. <laughs> yeah, and, and that's a good reminder too. go back and listen to uh, recent editions of Sports Business Radio. We're calling it The Vault. Uh, you might have seen some graphics for The Vault on our social media platforms, but Bubba Watson was on last week. Just fantastic. Talked about uh, the Masters being played in November, how he's going to adjust his preparation for November versus April. Also talked about mental health and was really candid and I thought brave on talking about his own struggles with mental health. A few weeks ago, Mark Cuban was on. We've had Candace Parker on. Gracie Gold talked about how Olympians struggle uh, after the Olympics and how they're kind of left on the on the curb. Um, so many great guests this year. Al Guido from the San Francisco 49ers. Dr. Myron Roll, who was an NFL player and is now a a great doctor, Mark Sanchez. So great list of guests just this year. If you want to go back 16 years, you'll find even more. But uh, go to the vault, sportsbusinessradio.com. Go to wherever you listen to your podcast and, and find Sports Business Radio. We always appreciate ratings and reviews as well. All right, coming up next, Mike Hackman, president of Sports Strategies and Solutions, former longtime Nike and Jordan brand executive, think you're going to find this conversation interesting. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. If you're working from home now like I am, you still need to look professional. 
Many of us are doing Zoom conferences or FaceTime calls with business associates. That's why I turn to my Mizzen and Main dress shirts. I need to look good from the waist up, but I also want to be comfortable. Mizzen and Main is like athletic wear disguised as a dress shirt, making them great for comfort while working from home. It's a shirt that has worked for thousands of customers, including hundreds of professional athletes like J.J. Watt and Phil Mickelson. Head on over to MizzenandMain.com and use promo code SBR to get $10 off your dress shirt. That's MizzenandMain.com code SBR. Guess what? Mizzen and Main also make super comfortable wrinkle-free pants and shorts, so you can check those out as well. Head on over to MizzenandMain.com. Use promo code SBR to get $10 off your next purchase. That's MizzenandMain.com, code SBR. My guest is Mike Hackman. He is the president of Sports Strategies and Solutions, LLC. Mike and I have known each other for many, many years. He worked at Nike and Jordan Brand for over two decades. Many of you know that I used to consult for Nike, uh, specifically Nike basketball. So Mike and I were on the road together and worked on a number of projects together. And I'm happy to have him joining me on Sports Business Radio for the first time. How are you, Mike? I'm doing great. Doing great. Appreciate you uh, having me on. Always good to catch up with an old friend. It is good. And, you know, we've gone to our coffees and and had our chats about the state of the industry and where it's going. And I wanted to bring you on because I think you've got some really interesting insight as someone who worked at Nike and Jordan for so long. And, you know, things are changing now. Uh, I've talked about this on our show, but I wanted to bring you on because I never was full time at Nike. And wasn't there nearly as long as you are. So thanks for joining me today. Let's start with, uh, tell people how you started at Nike long ago and, and what your jobs were when you were there. Well, it's, uh, like everybody has their own, their own kind of story own path. There's a ton of people at Nike that, um, you know, kind of grew up or, uh, their goal was, I have to work at Nike. I have to work at Nike. I was working at a uh, not-for-profit called the Indiana Sports Corporation in Indianapolis. And uh, our role there was to market the city of Indianapolis to uh, the sports industry, amateur sports. And the Nike All-America Basketball Camp was one of my clients. So that's that was my that was my connection. I helped them, came up doing events, creating events, managing events. So I helped them with the, uh, um, with the All-America Camp. And a gentleman named uh, George Raveling, uh, former coach, uh, college coach, he uh, was running the camps at the time and brought me on because there was really no one at Nike at the time in basketball sports marketing who had any experience with events. They were doing events, they were sponsoring events, but there was no like rhyme or reason or strategy around it. And um, so George brought me on and uh, essentially it was my role for uh, really for years what I did was kind of helped create platforms from a strategic point of view. Um, basketball sports market at Nike or sports market at Nike at the time, which was uh, the late, uh, was, I guess, 97, 1997, was focused on uh, the elite, elite youth, the elite athlete. And um, so I kind of looked at it as uh, if you're an elite basketball player from the age of 14 to 19, what are Nike's touch points with you? Um, and we kind of created programming and morphed programming and sponsored events and did things um, to give Nike, you know, kind of a touch and, and um, the ability to market the brand uh, to those, to that elite level player coach community. 
Um, uh, and so I did that for 18 years and it went from, uh, just running the all America camp to, uh, you know, all these events basically in the U S and around the world. And again, I think you bring up an important point. You aren't marketing Nike to consumers. You are marketing Nike to the elite athlete. In this case, the elite basketball athlete, because wasn't Nike's goal with doing Nike all America camp. Let's find the next Michael Jordan. Let's find the next LeBron James, even though that was one of the camps that we worked where LeBron was at the camp for a little bit. So Nike was always looking for the next great endorser to sell product. And that was one of the big reasons you did these events. Am I correct in saying that? Yes, uh, for sure. That, that was, that was one of them, but really the impact of it in the, um, uh, was as I, as I said, and, over the years, I'm really one of the only ones, or I'm really the only one that I know that talks about this, but I, I really believe it. The, uh, yes, if you found LeBron. So we found, uh, so LeBron came to the camp, what was that, probably 2002, 2001. But so for five years, I, you know, we had these camps, we had these events, and you're like, okay, if you're looking for the next guy, uh, you know, we, he didn't show up until LeBron did, right? So um, the impact that, that the, when you, focus on at the youth level uh the elite youth youth level is you're marketing the brand like i said to this community so these kids grow up and and you know not only is nike uh do they see a commercial on tv nike's a camp that brought them gave them a chance to play in front of all these college coaches gave them a chance to show what they can do in these different all-star games and those such things so for every one lebron there's hundreds of these other other players uh, and other kids that that got a you know they got a big uh, you know they got a big opportunity uh, to play on these platforms and um, so they grow so they they identify as you know they want to be with Nike because look what Nike's already done for them right um, and and then the also thing that or the, another big thing that I think is really impactful is when we would bring together the young players from around the world or. Um, whether it was Europe or uh, Africa, Asia, you know, wherever it was in the U.S. at that All-America camp, when you bring, that's the future of the game. So the future, the future of the game, the future NBA players, the future college players, when you bring them together, uh, that piques the interest of every coach in the game, every scout in the game, every GM. Um, the Hoop Summit is a great example of an event uh, that I helped run for uh, 15, 15, 16 years. And, um, you know, where, once again, every NBA GM, uh, when you go to the, hoop, the world team, Hoop Summit practice, and Hoop Summit is a game where USA Basketball would pick a team of graduating high school seniors, and Nike would pick a team from around the world of players aged 19 and under. Um, so you were bringing, for every NBA GM, you were bringing these international players to the U.S. and, you know, for a week of practice and haven't watched that. So there was tremendous power. And when you, um, for Nike, uh, when, when we brought those, those kids together. Yeah. And I mean, isn't it funny now, Mike, that, you know, we see a lot of the friendships that were formed at all America camp or on the AAU circuit. Now these guys want to play together, you know, when they're in the NBA. So it's kind of interesting to see the seeds of those were planted 
during those uh, early years, and and now we see them taking shape uh, as they're older in in the NBA. And it was a very different world back then too. And that's that's uh, you know when you talk about how things are changing in the in the sports marketing world, how things are changing in Nike. The I'm talking '97 to you know the late '90s, the early 2000s. Uh, the world wasn't as connected as it is now. So those, those platforms made a lot more sense then uh, because, you know, there wasn't, you couldn't pick up your phone and uh, follow a kid on, on Twitter or Instagram. Right. And see all of his highlights. Right. See the mixtape. So, uh, right. See the mixtape. <laughs> people had, had mixtapes, but you had to get a VHS or a, Exactly. Something, Someone sent you a DVD or, or something like that. God, are we old? Yeah. We're making ourselves yeah. sound really, really old. Um, so the other thing I want to stress for the purpose of this conversation is you ran events not just domestically, but you were running events in Asia. And, you know, again, Nike is looking for Yao Ming and they're looking, they're scouring the planet trying to find the next great athlete endorser. So, you were doing these events all over the world. Yeah, since I think 98 was my first um, international camp. We did a camp in Treviso, Italy, and it was, uh, um, you know, the best players from the best players from Europe. And right around that time, uh, Dirk, Dirk Nowitzki had just played uh, in the Hoop Summit and basically single-handedly uh, won the Hoop Summit for the world team uh, in, in, in 98. And then I went to the international camp in 98 and then um my second one was in barcelona in 99 and uh Paul gasol was a 15 year old camper at that camp he was set, you know almost seven feet tall at 15 and um skinny as a rail but i came back it was quite clear that uh, these international guys could play uh and you know we need to be out in front of this so yeah we started doing more um international camps we started uh, we did a partnership with uh, the nba basketball out borders uh, i managed that relationship and managed those events for years um so it was uh, amazing amazing times amazing career and uh, very very blessed to have uh, been able to experience it remember when we saw dirt Nowitzki for the first time was that tampa i think it was tampa in 1998 the hoop summit am i right uh it was san antonio okay san antonio they trained in dallas and uh and uh, the game was in San Antonio. Yeah. But it is interesting how I always used to joke with people. I'm like, forget about the NBA scouts. If you want to know where the talent is coming from all over the world, ask the people at Nike because <laughs> they've seen these people, these players up close. And, you know, I remember a lot of the scouts would come to the Hoop Summit and they'd be, who's Dirk what? And and who's Pow what? And they'd leave those events going, okay, let's get this guy on our radar. We want to draft him. Yeah, yeah, no, the, uh, once again, I mean, if when you think about Nike, the, when you think about how Nike started, Phil Knight, uh, and with a selling shoes out of the trunk of his car. And um, his first endorser was Steve Prefontaine, the great distance runner. Uh, sports marketing, when I say sports marketing at Nike, it's that's our job. Our role was to be kind of ingrained in the sport industry in that category. If we were basketball sports marketing, or, you know, you have, you wanted to have the best relationships, the best information, the best everything. Um, in the sport of basketball. So, uh, and that's, that's kind of 
Nike's origins was to, we used to always say, listen to the voice of the athlete, right? So it was all about, it was more focused on the elite athlete. How do you make the elite athlete better? And then everyone else will follow the elite athlete. Um, once again, the world was different then because we were all watching the same things. We were all following the same elite athletes. It wasn't as fractured and splintered as it is today. But um, the DNA of, of, of Nike was to, you know, how do you make athletes better? How do you solve problems for athletes? And that's, um, so when you do that, then obviously, um, and then for us in basketball anyways, when I started, it was very blessed. We were always the industry leader. So the, um, when we were at, at one point, you know, you have 95, 96% market share. Um, you can't really grow. You, you know, you, you aren't going to fight over that, that four or You you need to grow the game. You need to grow. And that was a large part of why we did things around the world as well was to try to with basketball without borders, um, with FIBA, we did, a uh, FIBA three X three Nike sponsors that, or was a founding partner with that. I worked with that, uh, because that was a way to try to get, you know, people in parts of the world that don't normally play basketball to play basketball. All right. So fast forward to today, 2020. Mm-hmm. And now John Donahoe is the CEO of Nike. He comes from eBay E-commerce is very big for Nike now and a big emphasis. And the categories have been removed. So no more basketball, golf, football, baseball, tennis, running. It's now men's, women's, children. Those are the categories. Things are changing at Nike, Mike. And it seems like that emphasis on finding the next great athlete to endorsed product for Nike, that focus has shifted. It, it would appear so. And once again, I've, I've, I've been away for a year or uh, over a year, but uh, yes, um, I don't know when, when you go from, and we could back, we should back up. When, when I started at Nike, the, the company was organized around product, right? It was footwear, apparel, equipment. And then around, I think 2006, 2007, something like that, um, is when the categories came in and we, you know, it, it was hyper-focused on, on, on the sport and on the category sports marketing before the categories, when it was equipment and, you know, apparel footwear was product based sports marketing at Nike, what we call sports marketing was still hyper-focused on the industry. So now that it's shifting to men's, women's and kids, I think there's still going to be some sports marketing you know, focus obviously because they're going to need some endorsers. Uh, the question is, you know, how how deep does it go? Um, in my time there, we were involved, engaged with the sport at all levels because um, it made sense because that's what we were that's what we were trying to you know that's what we were trying to get after. Um, now with the focus of men's, women's, kids, um, I've never worked in an organization you know that was organized that way, but. Um, and once again, it, it's, it's, uh, the times have completely changed. What we did years ago doesn't make sense to do today. So this might be the exact right change at the exact right time. Um, I don't know, but, uh, as far as the impact on sports marketing, they're still going to need endorsers. The question is, are they going to go, are they going to need as many? Are they going to go as deep? You know, what's that? And then what does that mean for, if you look at if you're an athlete coming up and you know a pro athlete, uh, if you're a college, if you're 
if 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 Nike's kind of getting out of the market or or dialing it back, um, so there's certainly going to be some impact down downstream. Well, so but, that's uh, right. And, it's and, hard for me to imagine being an old Nike dinosaur. Yeah, it's hard for me to imagine uh, Nike completely getting away from from sports marketing, but uh, doesn't appear that they'll need to go as deep and as and as wide as we as we once did. Well, and it's been widely reported that there have been pretty sizable layoffs at Nike over the last couple months. And, you know, I know from talking to some people at Nike, they've lost their job in sports marketing and they've shared that the the focus is shifting to e-commerce and, you know, less sports marketing. And if you're getting rid of these people who have been there for a long, long time and have those relationships with the athletes, it tells you something. So, you know, one of the things it would tell me is, your job, as you've explained it, you were doing events and there was Nike All-America Camp and you're doing Hoop Summits and, you know, events all over the globe. Well, now maybe there aren't as many events because now Nike's not looking for the next great athlete. And Mike, the way I've been explaining it to the audience here is I've got a 15 and a half year old daughter. And if she decides that going online and designing her favorite Nike shoe is more important to her than wearing that shoe because Alex Morgan or Serena Williams or LeBron or whoever wears the shoe. Well, that's kind of the mindset of today's consumer. And then the other thing that we know, especially coming out of this pandemic, is that brick and mortar is not nearly going to be as common as as e-commerce, right? E-commerce is less expensive. You don't have to have the big Nike town or pay the big rent at the brick and mortar. So that's going to change too. No doubt. No doubt. And, and, you know, uh, you know, the shift away from athletes started, uh, I mean, this isn't a real abrupt, the, the whole company being reorged this way, you know, is, is, is different, uh, for sure. But the move, there's been a shift away from athletes, uh, for Nike and for Jordan, um, you know, it's been going on for a couple of years now. So if you look on um, the social channels for Nike or Jordan, um, you know, a lot of times you don't, you don't see athletes, you see influencers or, or models, or it's more fashion. And that started, you know, um, years ago. So um, definitely a different time, definitely a different world. The one thing Nike, like every major corporation or most, most of the major corporations, they have all the data on their consumers. They have all the analytics. They run all the analytics. So um, obviously something's you know, um, telling them that this is the right move at, move at the right time. And like I said, it's, uh, there's a lot of indications that, that they're probably right. Well, and like I said earlier in the conversation and we've discussed, if you bring in a guy who worked for eBay as your new CEO, <laughs> yeah, they, yeah. you know there's going to be uh, a heavier emphasis on e-commerce. No doubt. So no doubt. And, yeah. let me ask you this with Jordan Brand, because I get asked this a lot and you're, you're much better to explain this than me. People ask me all the time, they go, what's the difference between Jordan and Nike? And I try and say, well, Jordan's its own standalone company. It's a partnership between Nike and Michael Jordan. But you worked for Jordan for a number of years, and you've worked directly with Michael Jordan. We'll get to that in a minute with his uh, flight school. But explain to people how the Jordan brand is structured. Well, that's changed too recently. I mean, right before I left. But the um, 
so Jordan started as a, you know, they had Michael Jordan uh, signature shoe, rewrote the business, rewrote, you know, how things are done. Um, and it was somebody had the idea to start the brand, right? So you're going to start a separate brand. So as a sub, subsidiary of Nike, not a separate company. Um, obviously, Jordan leans very heavily on Nike's. Uh, it would be hugely expensive when you talk about product development and uh, on that side of things. So uh, it's Jordan is a subsidiary of Nike. And uh, for years, it was run. It had a little bit more autonomy and ran a little bit separately. Um, as you know, everyone knows, just wildly successful. Um, just the, I'm so amazed. I'm, it, it, every time uh, the power of, of the jump man, the power of the power of the man himself, actually, um, you know, what uh, the brand owes the majority of, you know, of its success to Michael himself. Um, just the phenomena of what he did on the court and uh, that type of thing. But, uh, and then more recently, uh, as things were shifting at Nike, Nike um, came in and, and, and started to have more, um, more governance over the brand. Uh, than they had in the past, but it is a it isn't a separate company of Nike. It's a separate brand. So there's the Nike brand, um, there's the Jordan brand, and then Nike bought Converse. Converse was a complete separate brand. Uh, so they had their own all their own um, product development, all those things. Nike purchased Converse, so Converse is another brand. Um, so I don't know if that if that cleared it up or not, but that's. That's my explanation. Yeah, no, it, it does clear it up. And I, I, you know, I tell people all the time, it's not like Nike just says, Hey, Michael Jordan, you're an endorser for the Jordan brand and we're paying you X. It's, it's more of a partnership. And then Michael yeah. gets to help have a say in who the younger, you know, more active elite athletes are of today that become endorsers for the Jordan brand. Right. Yeah. 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 Yes. Yes. Michael has input definitely involved more than any, endorsers ever been involved yeah and it is amazing i mean gosh you know we watched the last dance this year and you know michael jordan hasn't played in years yet his shoe is still outselling most other shoes of, of active players and you know we saw how many people tuned into the last dance he he really is a phenomenon well and that's so that's a great example of i think in today's world being so connected and with all the social media that you can follow your favorite athlete, you know, so much about them, um, has made them so accessible. Uh, and then in today's world where anybody can be a celebrity, right? Anybody can have a YouTube channel and anybody can, can, uh, can, you know, have a certain level of uh, celebrity that I think it's kind of lessened the athlete, you know, uh, the athlete endorser where I, to me, a big reason why this was so, um, successful uh, was because Michael was finally accessible a little bit. There's always been a mystery with Michael. He always, you know, he always, uh, it was always Michael Jordan. <laughs> you never really got a peek behind the curtain and then you finally did. So um, I thought it was, it was a fantastic, uh, when they first said, how many episodes was it? Was it 10? I think it was eight. Eight or 10, whatever yeah. it was. I was like, wow, what are they going to talk about? Right. And then, and then when you, once you see it, you're like, I wish, you know, God, they left this out and that out and this out. 
they could have gone on and on and on. Well, and I've mentioned on this show, I talked to someone at NBA Entertainment, and they said they left 95% of the footage that they had sure. on the cutting room floor. Like, it didn't even air. So yeah. they have a lot more footage that, you know, who knows, maybe it's seen in the future, or maybe we just never see it. But we didn't see all of it by any stretch. No, they they deserve, I mean, I thought it was so well done and deserve all the accolades and uh, that they get. So, um, and they did, they, you know, once again, you know, with Michael sitting there, uh, having the reaction and talking that's they people got to see uh, a little bit of, of of what Michael's really like. Well, I'll tell you what, this year between his speech at Kobe Bryant's funeral and the last dance, I have gotten to see a side of Michael Jordan that I've never seen before and a human side that I'd never seen before. So I thought those two things alone, I mean, obviously very tragic that Kobe died, but his getting up and, and, you know, really getting emotional at Kobe's funeral. And then what we saw in the last dance, it was neat to see the human side of Michael Jordan. Yeah. So you've seen the human side of, of Michael Jordan. And, you know, like I said earlier, flight school, explain to our listeners what flight school is. And then, you know, you ran that. So it's a pretty special event that took place every year and, and explain to our listeners what that consisted of. Well, um, it started with the, off the concept of a baseball fantasy camp, right? You get a bunch of old guys get out there and play baseball and the old baseball, um, alums, you know, greats come in and, uh, essentially, so that's what it was for basketball. So, um, my first camp, it started the first one ever, was in let's see 97 i believe 98 was my first one and we did it for 12 i did it for 12 years and yeah i i kind of directed the operations of it i was the operations guy um but it was for people 35 and over um they would spend basically about fifteen thousand dollars to uh attend the camp spend the weekend uh in vegas with michael and then a who's who of uh basketball coaches whether it's uh, Mike Krzyzewski or Tom Izzo or Dean Smith, John Thompson, uh, Larry Brown, uh, Doc Rivers, you go down the list. It was not, it was pro coaches, college coaches, and then always brought in amazing speakers, John, John Wooden, uh, Don Haskins, um, you know, Bill Walton, um, all kinds of luminaries from, from basketball. So the guys would come in and we'd put them through a basketball camp. So, You'd run them through drills. You, we had skill sessions and, uh, you know, and games and league championships. And, um, you know, the skill sessions, we weren't necessarily trying to make these guys better basketball players. It was how do you, how do you connect them, get them interacting with these, with these great, great coaches. So it wasn't just a chance to meet, hang out with Michael Jordan. It was a chance to be coached by, you know, all these great college coaches and kind of the relationships that these guys built with them. And, um, Actually, a lot of the coaches uh, started their own camps uh, once they saw their own fantasy camps, once they saw how, how successful that one was. So uh, really, really, really amazing events, uh, amazing memories, great friendships, and was very, very blessed to be, uh, to be a part of it. Once again, George Raveling got me involved in that one as well. Didn't Jordan play in some of the games? Oh, yeah. Well, no, he would, he would play, yeah. Yes, he would. For a while there, he would jump in because this was 98, so he had just won his last championship. 
Um, so he would, he would play, uh, come in and have some, you know, ju- uh, jumping games. And then it got to be because it, to win the ring, to win the rings at this event, you wouldn't believe these guys diving on the floors. I mean, tearing Achilles, <laughs> they were doing anything to try to win this ring and they'd come back year after year. Um, so when Michael would jump in the games, then it would kind of screw up the standings and all that. So then it got to be, well, he'll play, you know, one-on-one or two-on-two or three-on-three a little bit. But, um, yeah, it was, uh, you know, Michael was so, so, so great with people. He's got amazing people skills and, uh, makes everybody instantly feel comfortable and feel a part of it. And, um, so yeah, it was great. And then you've told me too that you know it wasn't just about the basketball. Like they'd sit around and smoke the best cigars, and you'd have a steak dinner, and you drink some wine. So you know, again, you're with some powerful CEOs and people who have paid a lot of money to not just learn basketball. They want to network with each other and, and socialize with the, the coaches and, and everyone too. Absolutely, absolutely. There's a lot of a lot of different uh, business or a lot of different uh, opportunities came out of. Came, uh, came out of it for sure. Didn't you tell me Mark Cuban went to that? Yeah, Cuban would come. Uh, <laughs> he'd come. Uh, um, he came at least, I'd say, three years. Wow. And Damon this is Wayans, like. Damon, the actor uh, Damon Wayans came too, and he actually filmed uh, an episode of his. He wrote it into, uh, I don't know the name of his series or forget the name of his series, but he wrote into where he, he you know, got to play Michael one on one because every year. And Michael would do this. I'd been around Michael's kids' camps as well. He had um, had some camps uh, for kids as well. But Santa Barbara, where, right? Yeah, in Santa Barbara. So he'd play one-on-one um, at different times as part of his, you know, in front of the whole camp as part of his as part of his talk talk with the camps. That's amazing. So, all right, what is your best flight school story that you can tell? There's got to be. I mean, I hear stuff about Jordan all the time where you know he bets someone that he can make a shot blindfolded or whatever, but there's got to be a good story, something memorable that you have from all those years. Well, there's several, but the most memorable was, uh, was when Michael Jackson came to, uh, and wanted to say hello to Michael Jordan. So we were at Caesar's palace. This was probably 2000, maybe 2001. Um, we're at Caesar's palace and there's the pavilion back there. And that's where we have the courts. And, um, I'm the, you know, I'm the, I run, I direct the operations of this, right? So Michael's, uh, Michael Jordan is playing uh, three on three with, with some campers and, um, the, uh, Michael or the security guard comes up to me and says, Michael Jackson's here and he wants to say hello to Michael Jordan. You have to remember they did a, I think it was a Pepsi commercial together. Well, and they did that video jam. Remember that song jam? Jam. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Sure. So he goes, Michael Jackson's here and, uh, wants to say hello to Michael Jordan. And I said, really, uh, Michael Jack, you know, the guy, and he's like, yeah, the guy with the gloves. So I said, okay, where is he? I said, he's up in his suite. And I kind of smiled cause I was okay. Does, and, um, you know, this is going to be interesting. Is Michael Jordan going to, going to go up to see Michael, <laughs> Michael Jackson in the suite. So, uh, we go over and, um, tell, you know, Michael comes over from playing and say, Michael Jackson's here. And uh, wants to say hello. Michael Jordan said, well, great. Tell him to come down. <laughs> and the security guard was like, well, I think, and Michael walked away. So I told the security guard, I said, well, you know, if Michael Jackson wants to say hello, he's got to come down. So long story short, 20 minutes later, um, the security guard comes up to me and says, you know, Michael Jackson's here. 
I said, really, where is he? Because he's in his SUV right outside. And I said, well, he's going to have to come in if he wants to say hello to Michael Jordan. So um, the security guard leaves. I tell my friend, run, run, find your camera. Because this was back when your cell phone didn't have a camera. And um, all of a sudden, this the big garage door opens and the, you know, the place is just, it looks like a Michael Jackson video. The place just fills with light. And by at this time, there were five on five games going on everywhere. And so Hubie Brown's coaching, Gene Cady, Krzyzewski, you know, Doc, all these people are coaching. And in comes Michael Jackson with his entourage. And the whole place just stopped. And um, so the security guard, I'm standing there. I'm, I'm as shocked as everybody else. And the security guard brings Michael, directly, Michael Jackson directly to me. I think he's, <laughs> and he's, he's like, here, Michael Jackson. This is Michael. Michael's, uh, you know, I say hello. And, There's a lot of Michaels here. Michael Hackman. Yeah, Michael Hackman. Michael, Michael yeah, Jordan. Said, Michael Jackson. Yeah, said, you're here to see Michael Jordan. Yeah, I, you know, walked him over and they said hello. The, the whole place just was, you know, just, uh, like I said, stopped, um, surrounded them, watched them. They had a nice little visit. And uh, I mean, you talk good, about but, two icons. Exactly. Wow. Exactly. So uh, there was a lot of star power. Uh, there at, at, at that camp. Did Michael yeah, Jackson take a it, shot or anything? Did he try and... No, no, no. No? No, they just, they just talked for a few minutes, but, uh, uh, you know, the crowd was kind of going, was kind of going crazy. So, but uh, you asked me my most memorable, that's definitely my most memorable. But, uh, yeah, like I said, very blessed to be part of it. Well, I'll tell you another thing that we saw, and I'm sure you remember this, and I think about this all the time. So I think it was Washington, D.C. It was the Jordan Capital Classic. And it was one of the first times, maybe the first time, that Michael Jordan and LeBron James met because LeBron was playing in the Jordan Capital Classic. And I remember, you know, we'd bring everyone in, each of the teams, for pictures with Michael Jordan. And, you know, here comes... LeBron and everyone, you know, so hyped about LeBron and he's going to be the next Michael Jordan and blah, 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 blah. And here these two are taking a picture together and just watching them greet each other and the body language. That was a moment I'll never forget. Yeah, uh, I'm with you. I think uh, CP3 was part of that game, too. He was. Yeah, I mean, and he's great in his own right. But, you know, the debate now is who's the greatest ever? Is it Michael or is it LeBron? So that meeting really stood out to me. And, God, LeBron was so young. And and Michael was at the end of his career. Yeah, I think LeBron may have said hello to Michael um, when Michael was playing earlier than that. But uh, but, uh, that was definitely definitely a big moment. Well, and I remember, you know, that was the time we didn't have – cameras on the cell phone still but you know there were the news cameras and there were cameras like everyone was documenting that meeting that was that was very well prepared for yeah we had a we had a, that was your job right handling the media so yeah you were a little you were a little busier that uh, that year than any other year that was oh my god 10 that, times 10 times the media that was crazy that year and wasn't yeah. i'm trying to think of the year because i remember one of the years uh, and this is on YouTube, and there was a show called ESPN The Life, and I'm in yeah. a van with Carmelo, J.J. Reddick, Shavlik Randolph, and Amari Stoudemire, and we were supposed to go do a radio appearance, and the driver, I mean, we just get in the van, I don't know where we're going, and the driver has the address and everything, 
he drove us around for almost three hours. He got lost. Yeah. And this is before you had MapQuest on your iPhone and all that kind of stuff. So we're driving around and these guys are like, I'm going to need an extra pair of shoes for this. And Carmelo's getting cramps and we have to stop at the gas station so he can jump out and stretch his legs. And But it was great for ESPN's cameras who were in the car with us because, you know, there was some drama here. This wasn't working out as planned. And But I remember that year because that whole ESPN The Life thing was going on. Right, right. Yeah. That was funny. Yeah, we have a, we have a lot of memories from our our times together. But uh, yeah, it looks like it's it's changing. And you know, I drive by the campus now, and I see these buildings that look like spaceships. Uh, the new Serena Williams building, and the Sebastian Coe building, and the Mike Krzyzewski building. And I mean, they're beautiful buildings. But I just think to myself, well, gosh, if they're reducing staff, <laughs> there's going to be a lot more room on campus now. Yeah, well, and with COVID, and uh, I think a lot of things are going to change. It's a there's a friend of mine who's in uh, commercial real estate, and I asked him when all this started because of my I had this exact same thought. Nike has all these buildings, and uh, now most people are going to work from home. But uh, uh, like he pointed out, they could people are still going to need uh, there'll be fewer people, but they're going to need a lot more space. Yeah, so, yeah. Who knows? Well, I appreciate you, uh, you know, letting us know what you did while you were at Nike and the Jordan brand. And this shift is going to be interesting to watch. Like you said, it might make all the sense in the world and this might be the way to do it going forward. But it's definitely different than how Nike has done it in the past and kind of what Nike was founded on with Phil Knight and, and Bill Bowerman. Um, I mentioned at the start of the conversation that you're now the president and founder of Sports Strategies and Solutions. You've got great event experience. You've planned international stuff. I mean, you were just talking about you've, you planned Michael Jordan flight school operationally and things like that. What are you doing now? And if someone wants to get in touch with you, uh, how would they do that? Well, I, yeah, I started the uh, it's, uh, LLC uh, to consult. To basically, how do I leverage my you know, 30 years in the sports industry that's been really a very, very unique uh, type, of, type of experience. But so it's not just the operations, we, uh, the events. We talked a lot about that, but I did a lot of brand marketing and uh, uh, or worked a lot with brand marketing on the uh, on the Jordan brand side and those types of things. So uh, basically, um, I'm looking to help with uh, business development in the uh, in the in the in the sports world. Uh, brand development, uh, creating marketing platforms. That's what I did. A lot of what I did at Nike. Uh, and then of course the event operations and those types of things. The, um, as an example, I'm currently helping a, uh, basketball uh, software company, uh, expand globally, looking to set up some sales dis- distribution channels globally. So, um, those are the type of things that I'm, that I'm doing. And, uh, you know, to be honest with you, I'm loving every minute of it. It's, uh, Working from home, even if I was at Nike, I'd be working from home, but uh, uh, enjoying the consulting part um, so so far. And if someone wants to get in touch with you uh, to utilize your expertise, how do they email you? I think, yeah, my email is mike at sportsstrategies.org. Great. Well, I would highly recommend Mike. He is definitely an expert in, in what he does, and uh, all my dealings with him over the years have been terrific. 
definitely a pro's pro. And, uh, you know, we've become good friends over the years too. So that's been fun. When you spend as much time on the road as we did, you can't help but become friends. It was always fun to go on those road trips and go have dinners. And, uh, you know, we won't, uh, yeah. And we, we won't go into detail about the night that, uh, I sang karaoke, uh, because that somehow made its way onto the Nike voicemail system the next day. But uh, <laughs> luckily, there wasn't social media back then. That's right. That's right. <laughs> All right. Mike Hackman, president of Sports Strategies and Solutions, LLC. Thanks so much. This was a fun conversation. Thanks, Brian. Enjoyed it. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. There's no question that live sports and entertainment events are changing as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. To ensure a strong recovery that keeps fans safe and engaged, sports venues are reimagining game day with Boingo's 5G connectivity solutions. Boingo Wireless helps partners across the NFL, NBA, MLS, and NCAA redefine the in-venue experience with 5G-ready cellular and Wi-Fi 6 networks that power new touchless technologies. From contactless ticketing and security and in-app food ordering to IoT robotics for cleaning and maintenance, Boingo's backbone of wireless connectivity makes new stadium use cases possible. Choosing a digital transformation partner you can trust is key to achieving fan experience goals and following rigorous health and safety protocols. Boingo is the largest operator of indoor wireless networks in the U.S. They help world-class venues navigate a complex and ever-changing technology landscape and have done so for 20 years. I recently had Austin FC President Andy Lochnane on Sports Business Radio. Here's what he had to say about Boingo, Austin FC's 5G partner. A relatively competitive process led to a relatively easy decision. The decision to go with Boingo was one that came with a lot of comfort and confidence. Now more than ever, staying connected is what matters most, and Boingo makes it all possible. Our thanks to Boingo for their continued support of Sports Business Radio. If you need a trusted partner for your network and digital transformation needs, look no further than Boingo. Learn more by visiting boingo.com or emailing sbradio at boingo.com. That's sbradio at boingo.com. My guest is Keith Foreman co-founder of Sports Business Radio. You've heard him on the show many times before. Love to bring him on for his perspective. Keith, how are you? I'm good. Um, It's been a crazy week, huh? It has been a crazy week. Congratulations to you. You are the biggest Los Angeles Dodgers fan that I know by far. And uh, gosh, after 32 years, you're standing in the winner's circle. How does it feel? It, it feels gr- great, obviously. I mean, I couldn't be happier for the players that, that got it. Uh, they sure, certainly, uh, uh, you know, tried for a while and they finally got there. Kershaw and Kenley and Dave Roberts and JT and all those guys. Uh, but just, you know, a little bit surreal in the way they got it. Obviously, this season just is bizarre. I don't want to take anything away from the accomplishment that that championship you know, certainly was. And anybody inside of baseball will tell you how hard it was to win that World Series trophy this year. But all that said, it was such a bizarre year with so many crazy issues. It, it's just hard to kind of look back at it and and, and take it all in. I mean, it, we could spend hours breaking down this season, the good, the bad and the ugly. Well, let's start with the World Series itself. Lowest rated World Series in the modern TV era 
the numbers have been going down and down and down. You know, I know we've talked on this show recently about it's just a crowded landscape with NFL and NBA and Major League Baseball and NHL. Major League Baseball really didn't go up against NFL that much in the World Series. So I don't know at what point Major League Baseball executives and owners start to get worried about this downward trajectory with the World Series, their biggest showcase. But, you know, you had the L.A. Dodgers in there, a big market, and that still wasn't enough to help them. Yeah, but if there is ever a time to just take ratings, I mean, what most people don't even truly understand what ratings are. I mean, we're talking about Nielsen ratings. This is the most archaic, you know, system of of, of currency that we use, and basically, it's just for for properties and advertisers to to base their their dollars, their rates off of. Right. And uh, you know, yeah, every every sport is down. Um, I just I think you just chuck the ratings out the door for this year. Every single league, every single event, everything was down this year. Um, but you you can definitely make the argument that baseball is not, you know, gaining new fans. I mean, maybe more younger people were able to watch games because of the covid situation this year. But you know, that's on a very local, regional level. I'm not sure baseball has still figured out a way to, you know, reach as many people as possible. Sometimes they shoot themselves in the foot there. But, yeah, I don't know. I mean, like you said, you had so many sports cannibalizing each other. Um, that, uh, And then, of course, with, you know, the political situation, election year, you know, being, being what it is. I just This is just a toss-out year. You just cannot judge this year for anything. Well, and here's the deal, and, and we talked about this with John Oran a few weeks ago from Sports Business Journal. Until the rights fees start going down, the owners and the commissioner, they're not going to worry. And so far, that hasn't happened. You know, TNT, Turner just paid yeah. a lot of money for more rights to Major League Baseball. If those rights fees start to drop, then that's when you're going to see the owners go, wait a minute here, we're going backwards. But like you said, you know, really only the advertisers care about the ratings. The fans usually don't care. And, you know, as long as those rights fees keep going up and up and up, then the owners make more money. And it's a good thing for Major League Baseball. I will say this. I saw in a publication this week that if they had played the full season without the pandemic, the projections were $10.2 billion worth of expenses and $10 billion worth of revenue. Well, that would have been the first time in a long time that Major League Baseball had lost money if those projections turned out to be right. It's not a lot of money, but it's still, you know, it's a break-even or lose a little bit of money proposition. Yeah, and anyway, you slice it is, you know, baseball lost money. Baseball lost $3 billion this year, you know, average of $100 million per club. Um, you're going into the last season of the current collective bargaining agreement, which means this very off season, they need to start negotiating what the next CBA will look like. And there is more distrust between the players and the league or the owners in baseball than, than any other sport we have in this country. And when you count the losses you had this year, and then you add the potential losses for next year if it's not a normal season. And by that, I mean a regular 162-game season with you know stadiums filled. And then 
the prospect of of some kind of stoppage of play because these two sides can't come to an agreement, well, then you've basically got, what is that, three straight years of losses? I mean, that's, I, 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 the game will survive in, in one way or another, but that is just a, a death sentence. Yeah. Well, we'll see. I think a lot of things are up in the air for 2021. Just because we flip to January when that time comes doesn't mean that uh, COVID is going to go away and that things are going to return to normal. We're seeing you know, the NBA go back and forth with their players association on a start date. NBA wants to start uh, December 22nd. The players want to start more like January, February, March. And uh, there's a lot of money at stake. So we'll see. But Keith, the other thing, and this is what I texted you. I was like, we could do a whole segment on just from the final out of the world series until like two hours later. And it was one of the most bizarre circumstances. So you and I, gosh, long ago, we were doing a project for Nike. We were sitting in a hotel room and we were watching that major league baseball all-star game tie. Remember that? And it was Bud Selig it was yeah. Bob Brenly. It was Joe Torrey. And what was they, that like? Oh, one, oh, two, something like that. And, and yeah. they had never encountered that situation before. They had this hastily thrown together press conference. They were trying to explain like, well, what do we do now? We ran out of pictures and da, 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 da. And it was just like, it was a mess. But this scene reminded me of that. So you've got the final out. People start celebrating as is normal. And then they get to the trophy presentation and they bring on Rob Manford, the commissioner of Major League Baseball, and he gets booed and he is sitting there for probably five to 10 seconds. He kind of paused and it was almost like he didn't know when to jump in amongst the chorus of boos and and starting to, to talk. But then he did and he didn't sound like a commissioner of Major League Baseball. It, it actually sounded like he was having a stroke. And I don't say that to sound funny. Like I was concerned when I heard him speaking, I was like, what's wrong with him? And then I get onto Twitter and I'm like, am I the only one seeing this? And no, Twitter was on fire with like, what's wrong with Rob Manfred. So you've got that going on where everyone's speculating what the heck is going on with Rob Manfred. He's slurring his words. He doesn't seem himself like there's something weird there. And then, you know, a few minutes later, we learned that Justin Turner, had COVID and you know, that's why he was pulled from the game earlier. And then later Justin Turner is out on the field without a mask, taking pictures with his teammates and coaches. It was just a bizarre night. Well, okay. So you just laid out a lot of things. There's a yeah. lot to unpack. There. Yeah, there, there is. Okay. So I'm going to try to, to, to share with you some theories that I have based on, you know, watching a lot of baseball this year, I don't think we missed a single Dodger game this year. We certainly didn't miss a playoff game and then all the reading of, of articles and whatnot in between. So I feel, and when you, you know, say we, you mean you and your family, cause that wasn't me. Yeah. I, I missed plenty of Dodger games this year, just yeah, for the audience's yeah. clarification. I mean, between the two of us, consider me more of the baseball side of this this pairing and you certainly more the nba and, and maybe sure some of the right and certainly and not will. dodgers like i i you know i like right. the dodgers and i watched right. a good chunk of the world series but i haven't seen nearly as much as you have right so for anyone that's listening that that you know is is a baseball fan 
uh, and certainly a Dodger fan, which hopefully a few people are out there. Um, I even want to start this breakdown, this unpacking of all that stuff by going all the way back to 1988, if, if I can. Wow. So I was lucky enough to be in the stadium, in Dodger Stadium, when, when Kirk Gibson hit that famous home run off Eckersley to win game one. And it, it, you know, so 32 laters, we, we, we watched this final out, you know, uh, play out and just, it was so striking the difference. And a lot of people don't remember that when Gibson hit that home run again, that was game one. They still had to win three more games against the A's to actually win that world series. Right. But, but in a way it was almost like an afterthought. Um, maybe not then, but, but it's kind of like when the U S hockey team beat the Russians, people forget they still had to beat Finland. In the, right. No, that's a good point. Game. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, or even the Red Sox over the Yankees when they came back from 3-1 in the ALCS. They still had to go on to the World Series and beat the Cardinals. Um, anyway, that's beside the point. But what I remember so vividly after Gibson hit that home run, the walk-off, um, was that um, everyone just started hugging each other. Total strangers in the stands. People were crying people that had never looked or met each other were hugging each other. And that, that, that camaraderie and that excitement and that energy continued as you just sat in the, in your seats in the stadium for another half an hour and then slowly walked to your car and then listened to the post game on the radio with interviews in the clubhouse and then read the paper the next day. And then there was just so much fun and excitement and there were no cell phones and there was no YouTube and there was no, you know, multiple channels breaking it down with different analysts right. for two hours after the game. There was just none of that. In 1988, you literally had the radio. You had maybe your 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 three minute, you know, sports report on the local news and you had your national broadcast of the game. And then you had your Sports Illustrated article that came out a week later. Right. That was it. So it just was so incredibly different from the just magnifying glass intensity of social media and the MLB network and the Fox post game show and ESPN. And then all the morning shows the next day and all the pundits and all the articles, it's just intense. And so to sit there as a Dodger fan and watch that final out and then the celebration afterwards, it was kind of hard to do it 32 years later. It just felt so different. You know, my phone was blowing up with people texting and I, I felt the obligation to, to text back. And then you're watching this stuff play out in real time. And you and I were, were texting and I just I couldn't believe what what Manfred was saying, like you said. And I'm, I'm less concerned with how he said it. It's just like what he said was so poor, you know, in that very moment. And I think it's because baseball in general is just so relieved to have gotten this season done and actually crowned a champion. But then you go to the stage and you have the Dodger owner get up there and deliver the most bizarre uh, pre-written. Yeah. He read from a script. Yeah. And look, the words were heartfelt and that's all good and real. And the Dodger ownership is great. That's all fine. But God, that is just not the moment to read a three minute, you know, prepared text. Seemed like like 30 minutes. Yeah. it, It felt that way. I mean, that's where, and I felt bad for Verducci, who was up there trying to run that, that post-game show up there. And, and it's like, oh, my God, we're not going to have a chance to talk to Roberts. We're not going to have a chance to, to do all the normal things that the fans want to see. And, uh, and so that was bizarre. 
Um, and then just the whole thing, uh, the way that the Turner situation played out got really weird. And that's where I think we go from here. Yeah. I, you look, you know, you know, Justin Turner better than I do or of him. And, you know, from everything I've seen, he's a very responsible leader of the Dodgers. And I get the fact that your team just broke through and won the world championship for the first time in 32 years. You want to be out there with your teammates. But if we've learned anything this year during COVID, we don't always get to do what we want to do. We have people missing funerals and weddings and graduations and big milestone events because they're trying to be safe. And to me, the picture that stood out most of all was he's sitting down on the ground for the team picture next to manager Dave Roberts, who's a cancer survivor, and no one's wearing masks. And I just thought, what a negative picture this is sending. And, you know, people can go, oh, Berger, you're too harsh on this. But guess what, people? This last week, we had more COVID cases than any week we've had since March. So we're going the wrong way in the United States on this thing. And with messages like that being sent by a very prominent team that just won the World Series, <clears throat> excuse me, it's, it's just not, it's not the message that you want out there. So now Major League Baseball is conducting an investigation. And who knows how that's going to turn out. Turner is a free agent. So who knows, that might have been his last game with the Dodgers. But Major League Baseball puts out a statement and throws him under the bus. Even Andrew Friedman kind of threw Turner under the bus. And everyone was like, hey, dude was the Lone Ranger on this. People tried to stop him and isolate him, but he went out on the field to play. And no one on that Dodger team, not Kershaw, no one you know, walked him back and said, hey, I know you want to be out here, but you got to go back into the locker room. They welcomed him out there. And Mookie Betts said, hey, he's part of the team. And I get that, but... Gosh, Keith, it was just a weird, weird atmosphere. So, first of all, I don't have a whole lot of faith in MLB launching an investigation based on their track <laughs> record. Over the they're going to hope people forget this as soon as possible, so they're not going to unearth it six months from now. Yeah, we'll see. So, so yeah, so let's go back. Um, let's go back a little bit to the beginning of the season when baseball, the players, and the league was just we're just trying to get this season. Um, to go right. I mean, there was a lot of back and forth and for a while, and you and I, you know, recorded some of these podcasts where we just didn't think it was going to happen or they would actually make it um, because of the COVID situation. And, you know, it literally went up until the last possible moment where the league imposed a 60 day, you know, season. And then they put forth some hundred page, you know, COVID mitigation protocol that, that all the teams and players had to adhere to. And right out of the gate, we saw teams like, you know, the Cardinals and the Reds and the Brewers and, and the, and the Marlins, you know, go weeks without playing. Right. So at the time we're thinking there's just, there's not a shred of integrity um, available for this year's baseball season. This thing's a farce. Fans aren't in the stands. Teams aren't playing. You know, three weeks in, some teams had played 20 games. Other teams had played five games. I mean, the whole thing just seemed crazy. Well, the Dodgers, you know, went into this season arguably the the best team in baseball. Um, I don't think anybody doubted that. They were deep. 
they had addressed issues in the offseason. They they pick up Mookie Betts. I mean, they were good. And so there and and based on them, you know, losing in the World Series in 17 and 18, this team was obsessed with winning with winning a World Series. The organization was obsessed. And there was no way they were going to let even this crazy COVID season get in their way of accomplishing their goal uh, of winning that World Series. And so the Dodgers, to a man, went above and beyond what even baseball was asking them to do with with COVID mitigation. Justin Turner, who's the heart and soul of the team, and I, I think the players rep, he's kind of their go-to guy when it comes to labor uh, relations. Um, he, uh, he was the one who went even a step further than what uh, the rules were saying players had to do by making sure players always had masks on in the dugout, um, being incredibly respectful to the, the social distancing. Um, and and I, there's just a bunch of stuff I remember reading early on that Justin Turner was like, guys, we're going to treat this serious and, and more so than anybody else in the game. And they really were that way. They had no issues uh, throughout the season as far as we know. And so all along, Justin Turner has really been that model citizen. That's what's just so ironic about, you know, this unfortunate, you know, scenario that he found himself in at the end of the World Series. Because this was the, the quote-unquote poster guy for, for treating the disease or the, the virus responsibly from a player's perspective. So for him to have found himself into this situation was just crazy. Now, there's one other thing I want to point out. As in the backdrop, and I think this is really important. This is just my theory. I haven't, you know, really seen this written anywhere. But if you go back to the way baseball handled the the uh, the Astros cheating right. uh, in 2017, um, and the way that investigation played out, one of the worst quotes from the commissioner was he when he referred to the World Series trophy as just a hunk of metal. Right. You know, why do these guys care? Well, there was one player who came out and basically spoke on behalf of the players against the commissioner saying it's not a hunk of metal. That thing means way more than whatever the value of the trophy, you know, as a piece of metal, you know, is. And that player was not Trevor Bauer. Uh, and it was it, and I say that only because he's so outspoken in so many interesting, fun ways. It was Justin Turner. And Turner doesn't usually put himself out there like that. But he was the one that came out and told the commissioner, no, 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 you don't understand, dude. It means way more to us than you even understand. And the commissioner backtracked and he realized he made a mistake, you know, certainly from a PR, you know, perspective there. So in the back of my mind, I'm thinking that that, well, certainly I know for a fact that the 2017 Astros win over the World Series has stuck in the the Dodgers, you know, throats ever since it has fried them and made them that much more, you know, committed to winning it. And so fast forward to this season, you've got the commissioner on the field. Well, hold on. I, I need to step back a, a second. We need to talk about the bubble and the integrity of the bubble. So all the different sports had their approaches to the bubble, right? The NBA, we know very well what they pulled off in Orlando. Same with MLS. 
uh, WNBA, you know, all of it. Baseball decided to do their bubble differently, only in the postseason. And even then, it was kind of like an extended multiple bubble situation. Then you get to the World Series, and the bubble expanded. So we went from games being played in stadiums with no fans and limited family to now a much expanded bubble where now there's, what, 12,500 fans in the stadium. Sometimes the roof is open. Sometimes it's not. Families who, quote unquote, quarantined, I guess, in some way, were now able to join, you know, with with the team. Um, Staffs were expanded. So. To some extent, you just have to wonder what was the real integrity of the baseball bubble. And then within that, what was the testing procedure? What was the protocol every day? You know, baseball can tell us all they want. Well, we tested these players every day and then we sent the results uh, to this lab in Utah. And then the results were sent back in a timely fashion. And then we determined who could play and who didn't. And I guess up until game six of the World Series, everything was cooking along just fine. But you and I made a point back early on when baseball was trying to figure this out and the NBA. What happens if LeBron James tests positive in game two of the NBA finals? Right. Would they say anything or do they hide it? Because LeBron is the meal ticket and they want to get through the season. Right. So now we have made it all the way to game six of the World Series, which at this point, do you even risk having a testing protocol where you're sending – tests to another state and then they're getting expedited back and all that or do you have do you invest in some kind of testing where it's like you find out immediately like within half an hour or it's i dare say presidential level testing because we know how that's gone but um you know something a little bit more serious than sending it to some lab in utah I don't know. I mean, I'm not an expert on this stuff. It just seems to me that when you're getting down to the nitty gritty of the World Series, you've got to have a testing system that can figure out uh, things a little bit more, um, I guess, I don't know. Turner shouldn't have been in that game. He shouldn't have been in the game. It's an inconclusive test. He shouldn't have been in the game, in the dugout, on the field. He shouldn't have been. I mean, that's if you're doing this the right way. If we go back to when Rudy Gobert shut down sports in March, and now you've got this case. Remember, I mean, no one even came out of the locker room, and they had to ride the bus back to Oklahoma City and Utah. And I mean, it was it was like contagion on but that the day. Difference is, but the difference is that was essentially a meaningless regular season game. So the stakes are, are much higher. So you're going to have a lot tougher decision-making on the parts of, of, of the people running this game. And, and I agree. If Justin Turner shouldn't have been in that game in the first place, well, then baseball's really created a mess by basically going into the dugout and telling the Dodgers he needs to leave the game in the eighth inning of game six of the World Series. Right. That can't be. And then that, Fox comes on and, you know, after the game, because you're wondering, like, why is Justin Turner leaving in the middle of the game? And then Fox comes on at the end of the broadcast, breaking news, Justin Turner has tested positive for COVID. So then you're like, okay, let's think of this from a contact tracing standpoint. He was just on the field. He was in the dugout. He's been in the locker room and at the meals. Like, who else is he infected here? And this is the other thing, Keith. I guarantee you, if there are other Dodger players or Tampa Bay players that got COVID as a result of this World Series, we will never know about it. They are not going to report. Oh, yeah. By the way, two weeks later, 
these players had COVID during the World Series. They're not going to do that. If you're going to pull Justin Turner out of that game and and basically, you know, those some of the people, some of the players in the dugout and the coaches saw what was going on as this was playing out. That is such an unfair scenario to have played out in real time to both the Dodgers, the Rays and everybody watching, you know, baseball, because really you should have shut down the game. The whole game should have ended right there. Right. Well, not to mention now you go on the field after the game and there's families, there's major league baseball executives. I'm sure there's some VIP fans. It's a whole different scenario after that. So let's go back to that. So then, so you and I, Brian, in our time of, of working in, in sports and all that, we've gotten to know a lot of players. We've worked around players. Now is a moment at this very moment People need to to not get so hung up on the message that things are sending and, and, and all that. And think about these players as human beings and the, the pure raw emotion and competitive, you know, competitiveness um, and fairness and everything that's playing out with these players at this very moment. So already baseball's coming to the dugout and impacted potentially the Dodgers' ability to execute and think clearly in trying to close out a, a, a World Series clinching game six, all right? So Edwin Rios comes in to play third. Bellinger even said he didn't realize what had happened with Turner and Rios coming in to play third until a ball was hit to third. He saw Rios complete the play. He's like, what the hell? Why is Turner not at third? Um, so somehow the Dodgers end up you know, winning game six, and, and lucky for baseball – it ended up playing out that way because we we could spend another two hours just talking about the scenarios of what would have happened to game seven, considering the news on Turner. So meanwhile, Rios is at third completing that play. Justin Turner is now been isolated somewhere underneath, you know, the stadium and is watching the game play out and then watches the last out. And I'm sure he's happy and I'm sure he's excited and I'm sure he's totally confused and bummed out. And I'm also sure that he's thinking, I just probably am the victim of a false negative test or a false positive, sorry, a false positive test, right? Right. Did I say that correctly? Yes. Okay. So he has been as vigilant as anyone, you know, uh, He's probably wondering what the hell, this is so unfair. Baseball just pulled me out of one of the greatest moments of my life, and it may all be for for not. And why didn't the testing go this way? And he, so he's I'm sure he's going through all these thoughts, right? So I bet you, this is just my guess, he's watching all the, the coverage, and then he sees Manfred out there on the stage holding that World Series trophy or the hunk of metal right. that Manfred referred to. And my hunch is, again, totally my my thinking here, that Turner was like, you know what, F this. I, I can't take this anymore. I'm going out there. I earned this right. I've already been around all my teammates and coaches, all my players. It's not like all of a sudden going out there is going to expose them or hurt them in any way that they haven't already been exposed to me, if I even have got it. And so he marched out there and clearly, clearly there wasn't, you know, a system in place to prevent him from going there. Everything we have read basically says, you know, nobody was really going to stop him. And he went out there and I, I'm just, I just have this hunch that he went out there and he wanted to hold that trophy on the mound 
as almost like an affront to to the commissioner uh, for what he had done or what the players feel had been taken from them going all the way back to 2017 and the Astros cheating and the way the commissioner handled that. I, I just I think there's so much more underlying stuff that played into to Justin Turner's decision. And to a man, you really haven't heard the Dodgers players say anything negatively about it. They all know it was a bad, a terrible look. Even Justin Turner, I'm sure at some point will say, yeah, you know, in retrospect, I shouldn't have done that. Yes, it's probably, you know, sent the wrong message. And it did. It's terrible optics. It just, it, it's awful. But I, I think, you know, from my biased Dodger perspective, I, I feel like I can understand why it happened. Yeah. I mean, look, I totally understand the raw emotion. You just won the World Series. You want to be out on the field with your teammates. Like, I, I get all of that. But the breakdowns in protocol between Major League Baseball, and by the way, supposedly at the beginning of the season, each team was supposed to hire like a COVID coordinator, someone you know who oversaw all of the, the COVID cases and the protocols and all of that stuff. So that person supposedly was supposed to be the person that says, hey, Justin, we got to isolate you. You got to stay in this room. I know how badly you want to be out there, but you just can't be out there. And if you do, then here's the consequences. And maybe he said, screw the consequences. I'm going out there. This might be the only time in my career that I have a chance to go celebrate a championship with my team. Who knows? We'll find that out at some point. But just a lot of breakdowns and in protocols. And like I said earlier, the, the whole scene with Rob Manfred was bizarre. I haven't seen any news since that night that said, hey, here's what was going on with Commissioner Manfred, um, or he was just incredibly tired or whatever, but he was not himself, and he was slurring his words, and it wasn't just us that noticed it. It was you know everyone who was watching and lots of people on social media. So, yes, I'm, I'm sure Major League yeah. Baseball is happy to have the season over, and they got the World Series in. You know, They got their TV money, and they can move on. Right. And, and you know... As far as the baseball that was played, first of all, I'm so glad it was Rays, Dodgers. It just, to me, it was actually, if you just focused on the, the game itself and the incredible highlights from this World Series defensively and at the plate, it was a fun World Series. Except for pulling uh, Blake Snell in game six when he's allowed two well, hits. Well, yeah, 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 yeah. I'll get to that. But, you know, again, you saw some amazing plays. Um, good and bad and ugly. Again, I always keep saying that, but, um, so to that point, I'm glad it was not the Astros Dodgers. That would have been a bitter, dark and angry world series. And as far as baseball is concerned from a PR perspective, it would have resurfaced so much ugly stuff. So the Rays, I think showed the country that did watch that they're a pretty fun team, you know, and, and, and really about as good a team as I think you could probably get for being the 27th lowest payroll in the game going up against, you know, one of the, the giants, you know, as far as um, salary and, and just history in the sport. So to that, it, it was great. You know, 
watching pitcher after pitcher after pitcher come in every single inning and Fox have to go to commercial every time there was a pitching change, that was not so fun to watch. You know, if you're trying to teach people the game of baseball, younger kids baseball, I mean, you're going to get bored awfully quick. You know, I think all this pitching strategy kind of backfired on baseball's desire to, to make the games go by faster. This whole notion that, well, if we make pitchers have to throw to at least three batters, it'll move the game along. I think it completely did the opposite. Yeah. I mean, you just and, and and to watch eight, seven, eight, nine pitchers come in uh, on um, from both teams and see nothing but strikeouts. I mean, that really that I don't know. I, that just that's not the, the game I want to watch moving forward. Uh, but, man, the, the defensive play in the outfield between, you know, Mookie Betts and, and Bellinger and just some of the, the double play balls and then the plays at third, you know, from from both teams and then some of the crazy plays. And it's just, I just thought it was a really entertaining world series of, of baseball highlights, period. Well, congratulations to you. Congratulations to the Dodgers who again, win for the first time in 32 years. Very happy for Clayton Kershaw, just one of the class acts in all of sports. And he finally, yeah. you know, gets to wear the, the title of champion, which I thought he was a champion even before then, but you know, he's official now. So that was great, and, uh, you know, I think it's great for Los Angeles. They've got the Lakers and the Dodgers, and at some point they'll get their parades, and uh, just good news all around for L.A. Well, and how about this? I thought this was an interesting little nugget I saw somewhere online. Um, I guess the last time the Lakers and Dodgers both won in the same year was 1988. Yeah. And uh, Crazy. that's 32 years ago, and apparently in that same year – the dude that won the uh, election um, uh, carried 40 states and had, I think, 430 electoral votes. So I don't know who that portends well for. Um, that was Ronald but, Reagan. No, well, no, no, no. That was George uh, W. Or, uh, or H. George H. Yeah. Yeah. Poppy Bush riding on uh, the coattails of, of eight years of Reagan. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Well, as yeah. we've been saying all along, vote. As this podcast airs, today is election day, so uh, hopefully you've already voted, but if not, run out and vote. Your vote is very, very important, maybe the most important election we've had in our lifetime. Yeah, definitely. And then as far as, you know, baseball is concerned, I I think, you know, the the giant two-word question is, you know, what next? Um, Because as we both know, the, the the minor league game has been completely turned upside down. Yeah. Um, the major league game with the CBA coming to an end after next year is is in a very you know um, challenging uh, situation right now. The distrust still exists between the players and the owners. Um, and the one thing you know, to, not to make this political, it's it's actually more of a scientific, I think, situation is. I think baseball is is depending so much on on a vaccine uh, in order to be able to justify getting people back into the stadium. And so you're going to see this this watch, this play out, you know, amongst all the leagues is how can we safely get people back into our stadiums? And, um, you know, it's going to be interesting to see how how that evolves uh, as we go into this winter. But. You know, the, the other one I was interested – I saw this the other day. I think this is really interesting, Brian. Um, you know, the Olympics is still scheduled for next year. It got, it got uh, 
you know, delayed by one year, and it's supposed to take place in July in Japan, in Tokyo. And there was an article I saw on ESPN about the Yokohama Baseball Stadium, which is uh, the site for the baseball you know, competition at these Olympics. It holds 32,000 uh, people safely is what they wrote, wrote. And they are doing, they're conducting an experiment right now uh, this, this weekend, this past weekend um, of how many people, fans, can they get into that stadium with all kinds of enhanced mitigation efforts. So they've got all kinds of crazy technology um, that uh, does it, they're like reading carbon monoxide um, readings combined with wind speed, combined with special cameras, uh, combined with crowd flow and all these different things. And obviously masks being worn, but trying to figure out how many people can they safely get into the stadium? And then what is the, you know, the, the results afterwards. So they had 15,000 people in the stadium um, on a Friday. Um, Saturday, they were going to try to take it up to 32,000, then again on Sunday, and then conduct their study and then deliver their report to the Japanese government. And then that would be used as part of their, you know, um, projections for the Olympics. Imagine that, um, working with the government to uh, mitigate COVID. So um, that could be a really interesting you know, study that you'll see, you know, sports teams, especially baseball here in the United States, you know, take a look at, because if you can't have fans in the stands, and again, that's 40% of, of major league baseball team revenue is, is fans in the stands attendance and all of the, the revenue streams that, that come from that. Um, you know, the question is, is a vaccine going to solve everything? No, we're going to have to live with this virus in some way, uh, for a while down the road. So that's definitely a, a, a spot to watch there. Keith Foreman, co-founder of Sports Business Radio. Thank you for joining me. Always fun to get your perspective. And uh, again, congrats to your Dodgers. Like I said, you're the biggest Dodgers fan I know. So it's a pretty exciting time for you. Yep. Happy for, for all of Dodger Nation. 32 years. Thanks, Brian. You're listening to Sports Business Radio. We'll be right back. CBDMD is the official CBD partner of Sports Business Radio, and I couldn't be happier. Their products have made a huge difference in the quality of my life, my daughter's life, even our dog's life. I was having a difficult time sleeping, and CBDMD CBD PM drops and capsules have allowed me to sleep better than I have in years. CBD Freeze has been amazing for my daughter and I after we work out. Even our dog loves CBDMD's soft shoes. They've got a great array of products. And one of the things I like the most about CBDMD's products, they're all THC-free. That was very important to me. CBDMD is also the first American CBD company to be publicly listed on the New York Stock Exchange. Check them out under the ticker symbol YCBD. Athletes such as two-time Masters champion golfer Bubba Watson, former NFL wide receiver turned broadcaster Nate Burleson, and UFC athletes Daniel Cormier and Chael Sonnen use CBDMD's high-quality products. Change your quality of life just like I did. These are anxious times for a lot of us, and CBDMD's products have helped me sleep better and just live a, a higher quality of life. Visit CBDMD.com and enter the promo code SBR to save 25% off at checkout. That's CBDMD.com, promo code SBR. Well, that's it for this edition of Sports Business Radio. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks to our show staff, Brian Griggs and Josh Blank. 
Thanks to our friends from Boingo Wireless, CBDMD, and Mizzen in Maine. And thanks to our partner, Molka Sports, for powering Sports Business Radio. Learn more about them online at molkasports.com. That's M-A-L-K-A sports.com. For Brian Griggs, I'm Brian Berger. Have a great week, and we'll talk to you soon right here on Sports Business Radio. This and every SBR podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and your favorite listening app. Follow Sports Business Radio on Facebook, Twitter at SB Radio, Instagram at Sports Business Radio, and online at sportsbusinessradio.com. Sports Business Radio is produced by Brian Griggs and Griggs Productions, griggsproductions.com.